it didn't pick it up. Well, that's all right. Oh well, just max. I maxed out the the sound quality. <laughs> Everyone cool. imagined there was a beer can being opened right there. So, because um, there was. Yeah, there was. Anyway. All right, dude. We're we're almost in like winter band time now. Winter band is already almost here. I feel like drum corps just ended, and I'm seeing stuff posted online about just auditions coming up for this group and that group, and get your packet here, get it over there. Like it's it's things move so quickly, and I'm. I'm happy about it. I'm excited about it. I can't wait for an indoor season. Um, and that comes from someone that's way less of an indoor fan than an outdoor fan. But I think after the year and a half of all the craziness we just went through, it's, I can't wait. It's going to be great. Everyone's going to be fired up. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. It'll be exciting. The off season between drum corps and indoor feels like it gets shorter and shorter, but I yeah. think after, uh, the fans and spectators and then just the staff and members getting to, uh, have somewhat of a normal summer getting out there and performing for people. Everybody's jonesing for, for more and more. So, yep. I can't wait. Evan can't wait. So before we get into today's amazing guest, let me do my little intro spiel. Welcome everyone to the aged out podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Fantini. And with me as always is Evan Worrell. And make sure you hit subscribe on the YouTube channel, drop a comment, let us know what you think about the episode, give us any suggestions or feedback. We always appreciate that stuff, helps the algorithm, everything's good to go in that regard. If you're watching on Spotify, anyone who's not, check it out. All major podcast services, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all that good stuff. Hit up uh, LoneStarPercussion.com, use the discount code AGEDOUT to save yourself $10 on any order of $50 or more. Everybody wins in that situation, helps them, helps us, helps you. There's a deep breath, and here we go. Social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Instagram, all of that, uh, Aged Out Podcast, patreon.com slash agedoutpodcast. And I swear, I feel like I forget something every time I do this, but I'm going to assume I hit it all, and Evan, take it away. I'm super stoked about today's episode. Yeah, better you than me on the intro. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, today's guest, uh, a legend in the activity, super humbled to have him on with us, but without further ado, uh, thanks for joining us up from the Northeast. Uh, Mr. Colin McNutt, what's up, man? Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, man, uh, really enjoyed the product that you and the rest of the team put out, uh, that the kids were able to pull out in a short season, which I'm sure we'll get into this summer. Um, I thought it was incredible what you and a lot of the other teams did. And yeah, it was just, it was, it was great for the activity, great for the spectators and the fans as us to to get to see some new beats and some fresh content and just hear live music again so uh so yeah thanks to you and kudos to the staff man the single most important season of my drum corps career because i mean who would ever ever thought that we would just be completely tanked you know where you can't travel you can't get together you know drum corps is community you know marching arts it's about people together doing something together and you know with covid obviously we've been shut out and we all have a story. We all have a story about how that's affected us. Uh, not to get into that in the podcast, but uh, just just to validate that, you know, super difficult times. So this was one of my most enjoyable years, but just to see all the cores out there pushing to keep this thing alive and doing a lot more than pushing. I mean, the groups were, I mean, regardless of the adjudication, taking that out of the mix, it, it did not change the passion and uh, the, the work ethic and and really the results of what people were able to do in a short season. And uh, it was fun to be a fan of drum corps, to go out there. There was a camaraderie with the other corps and uh, just really 
fighting for survival. That's what we really felt like. And um, I have to say to you, you both, I'm a little bit of a newcomer to your podcast. My, my students were forwarding me stuff, said, you got to check these guys out. And I went down the rabbit hole over the last couple of weeks, watching a lot of your stuff. And I love that you're opinionated. I like that you have a, a take on stuff, but overall you're, you're an ally for anything marching arts and you're pushing the activity forward with us. And um, no, no better year than this to have that type of uh, support. So that, that's really what, what kind of engaged me to get, say, Hey, let, let's talk about drum corps together. I, I'd love to come on here. And um, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, absolutely. We appreciate it. We appreciate that praise and, and the kind words. And, and like you said, I think it was super important just for the kids. Cause there was a lot of, well, what's it going to be like with, with the shows? Or what's it going to be like? How are the stadiums going to be? Is it going to be full? Are the kids going to feel that normal adrenaline rush of performing uh, in the lot, in the shows, and having people give it up to it? And, and I think there were a lot of people at first that were critical of stupid things, like, oh, there's not going to be this, or there's not going to be that. Instead of missing the point, it's like, dude, there's going to be live performances, and there's going to be kids out there just like going after it and getting better and... like working their asses off the same way that they normally would. Maybe not for 82 days and it's condensed in this time, but it's the same. It's it's all the same. Showed you that the essence of the activity is not about the schedule. It's about the idea that you're doing the most altruistic thing you can do. You know, it's a member-driven activity. You know, in my opinion, I'm giving you my opinion on it, but I think that it, you know, we work for them. And if you're 20 years old, you, you age out one time, you know, you have a finite amount of time to do this before you go on and, and do other things in your life. And it was critical that we were able to safely, you know, get ourselves out there and do something. And I'm speaking from the little bit that I know about all the cores and, and, and DCI in general, you know, like we, for instance, Boston, we traveled with a doctor. We had, we were testing basically weekly. You know, we were making sure wow. that we were safe and that we were careful. And I think all the cores were doing a version of that. And, 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 you know, the idea was that, you know, just sitting back isn't going to help us go forward. And unfortunately in times of, 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 of terrible, situ a terrible situation brings the best out of everybody. And um, the members were just phenomenal, but they were sort of fighting for their last breath in a lot of ways. And I'm not being dramatic. It was, you know, in 2020, you know, we would have had, speaking for Boston, we would have had our January camp. We played four or five minutes of music outside. We're, we do our camps in Texas and San Antonio area. And we're outside rocking and rolling and we're just feeling great doing our stuff. And then all of a sudden we're shut down and we have no idea if it's going to come back. Got ranching. You know, yeah. And WGI, you know, I, I feel for them because the vaccine wasn't approved at a time when they could have a season. And they were very ingenious and, and very creative with how they were able to keep content going. And I think that's that's also a tip of the hat to you all. That's what was impressive is that you also kept content going because content kept us connected to what we love about the activity. And, you know, if you flash flash forward to the DCI season, you know, we were able to do a lot more than people thought we were. And it was extremely uh, engaging. And we were able to, a lot of ways, push push things forward in a time when we were hoping to just survive. And uh, I think the members had other other thoughts about survival is not what we're about. We're going to push forward and actually get better. And For and that's what I witnessed being on the tour. 
and um, just very grateful that we were able to do it. And it's fun to be able to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. I, so you mentioned, obviously, the 2020 kind of getting the, the plug pulled in January, February, March there, that, that first quarter of the year. When did like Boston start to pivot towards the 2021 season? And I guess like what was that kind of process like for the members? Did you guys stay engaged with them, like doing virtual stuff, visual or virtual stuff and like like homework assignments? Did most of the members from 2020 retain to stay with 2021? Or kind of how did that happen with uh, with the whole crew, the design, admin, and all that? Yeah, I think I mean, it's we a really were... sorry. I think that's a really good place to start. Like, let's just kick it off with what just ended because Evan and I have been we're completely baffled how you guys did what you all did this season, for lack of a better way to put it. The level of clarity that was achieved, the level of just like it, it felt like watching a group that had a full tour. Like there might have been just like across the board with everybody a few more scratchies. But the level of quality you all achieved from an execution and writing standpoint, like how? I just People have the question how. Back off. Yeah, a lot, a lot of it was that, you know, we, 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 we really didn't have another in-person meeting. We hung on a little bit virtually in February. And then by March, you know, we, we sort of had to look at what was happening. Um, you know, you had massive unemployment. You had, I mean, major, way bigger stuff going on. And a lot of it, too, was the idea that we didn't know what the members, you know, were going through. We didn't really know what their story was. You know, a lot of these kids, too, they're in school. Now they're not in school, you know. And, and what about their parents? What about stuff that's happening? And, and God forbid if anybody had an actual connection to, to something, you know, medical that was happening. There was just a lot of unknowns. So we sort of pumped the brakes a little bit. But we – I think the idea was that we, we, we had – we had a positive direction to the idea that when we can kind of re-engage, we're going to go at it a hundred percent. And I think, I think, I think that was all the drum corps. I think all the drum corps that participated last year, um, we were just kind of waiting to the point where there was some good news. And of course we all were watching, you know, the news and, you know, the vaccine was being developed and we were getting excited about that. So what we what we chose to do was a lot of coaching. We did a couple of virtual events, a couple of things that we did, like the battery played Spanx. We did a couple of things that we put out there with the kind of Hollywood squares, the, the pixels, you know, of the different individuals playing. And and that 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 did keep the training going and we did train, but I didn't feel that I wanted to over overdo it with the amount of zooming because they were doing that with school. They were doing that with other stuff. So a lot of it was just talking about COVID and talking about and validating like kind of what everyone's going through. Cause I was going through it personally, you know, half my business was shut down. I, I, I make a living traveling and being able to engage in real time with people and that was shut out. So I, I think that that really helped that we were able to, as an organization, just talk to the members about, Hey, we're there. We understand, but we're going to, we're going to train and we did train. We were doing stuff like a lot of the cores were doing. But we weren't doing it at a pace that was crazy. It, we, we left a lot of space for them to kind of figure out how they could survive the immediate kind of uh, priorities, which weren't – it wasn't drum corps at that time. But the board, our board of directors, and I think this is, again, I'm not – Boston is not unique in this. I think all the cords were doing this. I, the Boston board, we had a lot of meetings, and we had a lot of, uh, a lot of talking about 
how essential it was, whatever a season could be, even if it was just going to finals and, and performing in a non-adjudicated fashion, that if we could do it safely, we were in. And and I think that was a lot for the members to to be able to latch onto, like, hey, if we can do something, we're going to do it. And um, this generation of, of students, they're they're amazing. You know, a lot a lot of times, like I'm old, I'm fifty, I just turned fifty. So a lot of like people of my generation, they're like, oh, the kids today, you know, they're not they're not they're distracted. They're doing a lot of things. They're 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 spread too thinly. But I would counter that and say that the, that the members that I dealt with, they were just hyper focused on keeping drum corps alive, and I think that was the case for all the drum corps. And um, as you saw at at, at, at in Indy, in, in Indianapolis, it was it it really did come to fruition, uh, which is just and, and a lot of that was the timing of the vaccine. So we can't take credit for that. We didn't develop the vaccine. <laughs> we were lucky that it came at a time where we could we could do a move in. You know, and where we do move in, we we are in Vermont, in Castleton, Vermont. It's a very isolated area, very low COVID. Uh, the campus that we that we go to, Castleton University, there's there's really nobody on campus. We were able to create a bubble very very safely and uh, and crank and crank it up. So we we did a month there, and we were able to really program a show. We felt like we could program a show. The visual demands were maybe a little less, but everything else was kind of we felt like we could pull off uh what we normally would do in a normal season do, do awesome. you guys think part of that level of achievement came from a sense of urgency that the shortened season put on everybody like you kind of were uh-huh. like hey we don't have two months to clean this so it put a little more urgency in the members and it put a little more urgency in the staff like hey this part doesn't look like it's going to work we're not going to wait three weeks to water it let's just fix it now or the members were kind of just like hey we don't have time to like not have our heads on straight some mornings when we wake up, you know, that kind of stuff. I think that it was all that. Um, when you take something away from somebody, unfortunately, as humans, we learn the most when when we're in tough times. I hate that that's the case, but, you know, I, I wouldn't wish this on if we could go back in time and not do it this way, we would continue the way we were doing it. But it really helped us motivationally because you take it away and then the members were like super driven. Um, in a different way, not, not that they weren't driven before, but I think there was more at stake. And, and I think the kids understood, you know, what was at stake, you know, that, that you, you, you can't assume that DCI is going to even be able to go on. You don't know, you know, there was a point in time where we didn't know, you know, how long this would go on and, 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 and if we were able to sustain this, you know, so, so it was really cool once we were able to get some positive news closer to move in um it was like nuclear energy you know everybody was so excited just to be able to to kind of do drum corps again and it was a great distraction from from real real life issues that were going on i don't want to i it's it's tough to talk about drum corps when you know it's been such a difficult time but in difficulties and you know you you evolve through discomfort um i think drum corps is about discomfort you you eat you eat stuff that you don't want to eat you uh, you know you you rehearse in a way that is completely out of the ordinary. You you're not on you're not on your your cell phone because you're rehearsing 12 hours a day at move-in. So it, it, I really believe in those ethics of what drum corps is. It's it's a great thing. It's, it was great for me as a student. You know when I was at, at an age when I marched. So to be able to deliver that experience was great. 
but the but the students were the game changer for sure i yeah i wanted to double back on that real quick just and give a shout out to like you said to anybody that that did this season as a member i think that that generation this generation whatever people like have a stigma of like oh gen z selfish this blah 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 whatever but everybody who marched this year did it just for like the love of the game pretty much uh the love of the activity, the love to to play, to dance, to spin, to drum, whatever, um, because they were able to provide the fans and the spectators really with a normal on-par experience. Like as a spectator, you don't put numbers on a page. You may look at them at the end of a show, but they don't really mean anything to you. Um, but the kids like were just like, numbers, nah, whatever, staffs, numbers, whatever. We're just going to go out, and we love this activity. We want to see it grow back and thrive so we're gonna we're gonna go out here and do it and really provided us as fans a pretty normal experience uh other than maybe a couple things here and there but whatever uh so yeah yeah, kudos to those how cool is that i mean because you know i I think that when you issue challenges to a 20 20 year old or an 18 or whatever um when you issue a challenge think about when we were that age you know you're gonna step up and and then when you add the pandemic, um, the sense of urgency was was very high, and and I agree with you. You know, one thing that was really inspiring to me, you know, just to talk drum corps a little bit because I'm a drum corps person, a drum corps fan. You know, someone like Crown, you know, Crown, their organization decided not to participate in Indy. So you could look at that as a negative. I saw it as a huge positive. They were like the kickoff to uh, DCI's tour. And they, right. they did this live stream thing that was very intricate. And they went out there, they did move in, because I have a lot of connection there with Tom Hannum's like my dad, basically. So, you know, and Michael Klesch lives down the road from me. We all live in the same town. We're very, very close. And to see what they were doing a month before we came into moving was really inspiring because they could have easily just done something really simple, done a little video and call it a day. And they did like this live stream event that really was connected to DCI and really pushed the activity. So my hat's off to all those groups like Crown. You know, they were kind of the first ones. They were kind of like the per- first ones on the beach, you know, kicking butt and doing their thing. And and it, For it, sure. and it was really great just to see that we're bigger than a, than a recap. You know, the recaps are part of who we are. You know, competition is life. I think it's okay to practice competition. It's not an unhealthy thing if you can can put it in its right place, you know. I mean, any group that goes out, you're trying to to bust it as hard as you can and compete. But competition wasn't the reason that these kids are giving up their life to do this. And I think that was proven during the pandemic. And that, that was a thing that was really inspiring to me and why I would put this year as one of my most memorable, maybe the most memorable year I've ever done in drum corps because it was such a – you know, the chips were against you and it showed you the tenacity of that generation. And, you know, I always say to the members, like, you know, we work for you, you know, what do you want to do? And they wanted pedal to the metal and it was great. And that, that was really where, where this all came from. I love that. I love yep. this activity. I think yep. it teaches so many, uh, we talked briefly before we started recording, but just so many life lessons and just true like grit to, really propel you into your life i guess i mean there's so many things from drum corps that i take in my everyday life with like just how learning how to manage 
highs and lows it's like oh this isn't really that bad or oh i can push through this and that sort of thing but for sure um i'll pivot a little bit um just slightly so we're still going to focus on this summer so you guys had the green light obviously we talked about move-ins well things were kind of rolling in that direction as far as positives to how have this summer happen so you guys go through the design process do you feel like knowing that there wasn't going to be judges and scores and recaps and this thing and critique it kind of unleashed you a little bit as an arranger and a composer to like maybe not put things in the show that would like for so to speak check off the box but just to be like this is what i feel and this is what i hear i'm going to put this on the page and see where it takes me i i think that was more i only speak for my own decision making that was more how i thought about the warm-up stuff because i actually I felt like we had a chance to do some different things there because I was concerned that the performance opportunities would be limited. So I kind of delved into my own experience as a player. I said, you know, because if you've ever been to one of my parking lots, it's really, it's really about preparing for the show. And I felt like we had, you know, an obligation to make more of a performance out of it. So I learned a lesson about that. Like I said, wow, I should have been doing this really all along. We should be doing more stuff any chance we can perform is important. And uh, I put a little bit more into that. But as far as the show design, we were pretty we were pretty much on par with what we normally would do, with the exception of maybe a few visual things were like a little easier. Maybe we took a little bit of a simplistic approach in a few spots. But as far as the show and the, and the writing, uh, we, I think we kind of tried to do it based on – the kids giving up in summer, you know, they're going to give up a lot of money, and a lot of time. So, and I think a lot of drum corps did that. You know, we, we tried to, to really push the envelope a little bit and strengthen, you know, kind of where we were as an organization from a performance standpoint, because we had the opportunity to, you're going to put the drums on for an entire month of moving, you know, let's get in there. Yeah. So that was kind of what we thought about with that. But the, but I would certainly be transparent about my own transgressions that, you know, especially my cadet days, you know, the shows were so visually demanding at times that we really spent most of our time just preparing how we played in the forums and dealing with the, with, with the, the here and now of the show. And remember, it's not WGI. DCI has 80 brass players. You know, I have an obligation to make sure that that we're, we're doing our job for what they're doing. And there's a lot more, more components, I think, in a, in a drum corps season that you have to think about. But I have to admit that I learned that we can also make the lot a little more interesting and a little bit more fun. Uh, so that was a, a fun thing for me to delve back to my days as a player and make it a little bit more fun that way. Well, I do um, love Spanx. That's an awesome <laughs> exercise. I, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I fun. loved all the cool warmups. I have to ask as an aside, since we're t on this subject real quick, and I know Evan mentioned this briefly in a previous video, I think our Boston reaction video, like you threw it out there. Who played Red Red's Roomba better? Well, Star Star of Indiana, unfortunately, <laughs> by by no by no uh, fault of their own. That was Star of Indiana was such an important part of my career. I had aged out at Vanguard the year before, and my, it was my first teaching job. And this group was, you know, used to winning or being at the top of kind of the DCI, you know, pedigree. And 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 Hannum, you know, Tom Hannum is such a great mentor to me because he's like, yeah, write the exercises, you know, do some stuff. And he was really tuned in to, you know, modernize some things that we're doing. 
So, and I was 21 years old. In those days, you didn't have the bonus year. If I had a bonus year, I would have marched. Um, so I was teaching and yeah, we were writing crazy stuff because I was, I marched with Murray and Red's, Red's Rumba had originated. Really, it was just a reaction. It was a, my own reaction video to, to Marsha Mambo. You know, it was, it was really, you know, uh, the Diddy to talk like some history. The Diddy hadn't been written yet. I mean, this was before that. Um, 93 was a year after I'd aged out. So it was like, oh, well, we should be doing something unique like that. And but we gave the, the Star Indiana zero zero minutes to work on it. I mean, maybe there was an assignment like in the winter, and we really never played it. You know, we really never practiced it and played it. Um, so I think it's an unfair kind of, kind of thing because <laughs> because Boston we added in the program. I got motivated. I looked at myself. I said, I have to get off my my ass here and like write something. And I kind of re envisioned it, and then they practiced it, and so they were able to play it because we played it all the time. I mean, we never played Red's Rumba at uh, at Starve Indiana, or very little. So they did just fine for the amount of time that we played it, which was never. There's like one YouTube video of them like working on it, and maybe it's after a show or something. And like one of the comments is like, "Oh, so this group actually was human. That's good to know." Uh, just <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well, we we spent you know it's the Starve Indiana. Not to digress into ancient history, but you know Starve Indiana was like. We used to track. So our lot was really boring because you come and check us out. And we were marching around because, you know, the drill demands were, were difficult. And and everything was about making sure the brass and the timing and the ensemble. It was all about that. So we would just spend our warm-up really preparing that stuff. Um, so Red's Rumba, you know, a lot of the stuff. I'd written like a street beat and a, and a difficult, you know, etude like Red's. So we really didn't spend a lot of time on that after we got into move-in. Um, but I learned my lesson. You know, it's about learning. I'm 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 learning every day. You know, <laughs> about my mistakes. The, you learn the most from the mistakes that you make. So, so for me, it was really about kind of looking at it and saying, you know what, this is a perfect opportunity because the the lots might be better videoed. They might be more covered than even the shows. So I I really thought about that way before we even got to move in. I I, I said to myself, I we got to do something more. I need to do something more because I kind of took that away from a lot of my drum lines where we really just focused on the show. So uh, I think that in the future, I'm going to continue that because I, I, it was really, it was really an important decision that I should have been making for years. <laughs> honestly. It was certainly a hype. I feel like uh, I loved it. Looking at the members performing that, I felt like it was a hype to them because it sounds and is hard yeah right <laughs> it's right. really cool um so it's like you can just tell it's like this is hard but it's also really good so that makes yep. it even better yep. um but on a star 93 note my and my percussion instructor in high school turned me on to this it has one of the tastiest tenor things that i recall it's like i think it's the beginning of the drum break it's like then they just have that roll and then i think the snares move on to that check it to get that rim stuff or whatever but anyway you got to rearrange that piece in 2013. When that came up, were you just like, "All right, let's go"? Yeah, it was. It was. A, it was an interesting thing. I wasn't really on board. <laughs> that was 2013, I think. Yeah. Um, George George Hopkins, who was really the program coordinator at that time at Cadets, and you know, all the time at Cadets, and Jay Bocook, they had a vision for taking Medea and combining with with uh, Adagio for strings, and there was like this kind of um, duality in that piece. 
And I, I remember thinking, I don't really know how we're going to do this better. But then I realized that really no one was playing that style. So I, I really did try to emulate the style of Star in a lot of ways. It's like dramatic, dynamic range and, and transparency. Ambers everywhere. And it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of notes, but the notes count. You know, so a lot of it's interesting. People ask me a lot of times like about style. And to me, it's like being a session drummer. It depends on what the music's doing, right? It depends on on what 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 the music requires. And 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 when you're playing Medea, you know, you have an ostinato going, so you have to have that going. And then it's sort of like these riffs or these transparent figures that are happening. And uh, we were running like crazy. You know, it was, it was a typical Jeff Zactic drill. We were running all over the place. And uh yeah, it was it was it was a really neat to kind of go back in because I really didn't want to do it at first, but it was fun to re envision it. And there's a lot of what Star did a generation later. That was really how I approached it, um, it because that that piece was was all about hearing every note. So that was kind of how we wrote it. I loved it. I'd love to have such a callback, and obviously you being involved in both uh, pretty heavily. I was like, this is going to be do it justice. So. I that beefed pretty... up the tenor parts a little bit, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the tenor parts, it was really funny because I was a tenor player myself, and I was teaching primarily the tenors in full battery at Star. And, you know, people weren't really that to, – to tell you the truth about Star, we used to get booed. You know, I remember being in Bloomington, Indiana, if Jim Ancona listens to this podcast, I'm going to shout out to him, my partner in crime. And he was teaching the pit in those days. He had a very small staff. And we remember coming off the field. In those days, we would kind of go and review – and we came off the field at Bloomington, our, our home show. We were getting booed because the show was – it was very uncomfortable. You know, it, was a, it was a very different type of programming for what drum corps was doing then. Um, and I don't think that the kids in the drum line knew at that point. If you went mid-season and, and interviewed the members of the drum line, they would not have been able to tell you, oh, yeah, we're going to win drums. Because <laughs> you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't have any understanding that that type of drumming would work. And, 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 you know, you have to give Tom Hannum total credit because for him, it was about the music. And that was a time in drum corps when the music really could be a priority above all else. And uh, when we went back to, to, to answer your question, when we went back in 13 and did it, it was fun to go back and try to create that, that low level transparency. And uh, yeah, talking to you guys right now, I wish we could have a piece that did that again because if the music calls for it, it's really a unique way to have a melodic drumline out there on the field where it's low level stuff where you're really hearing all these things, regardless of where you are on the field. Um, that it's, it's a neat, it's, it, it's why history is important. Absolutely. Speaking of like music and the importance of music, when you are diving into an arrangement and you're like, all right, this is going to go and you get the arrangement from the brass person at Boston, which I don't know. At, at, at Ryan time, George. Sorry. All right, Ryan George. Um, so do you take his arrangement and then like also take like the source material and like how much how much research and deep diving are you doing into that as far as uh, when you're going to put in your own style and then uh, getting the front ensemble arrangements and like does that happen first does that happen last in some instances like take turns like all right I have an idea for here then we'll write the pit or got the pit book and then I'll I'll write in and fill in on top of it. I think it's, it's different with every group you're ever involved with. You know, cadets, the approach was extremely different. At Boston, what was different was that we hired Keith Potter, who was the artistic director, and he's, 
you know, a guard icon and it was programming a crown. I think when you were there, um, he was, you know, Oh nine to 16. He was, he was the artistic director and coming up with the show ideas. So when you hire Keith Potter, the idea is that we're doing a show about witches, you know, Salem witch trials. So everything has to follow in suit with that character. So that's the first thing is thinking about, like, I was thinking about like the, you know, talking about Boston. So we did like an SOS show, I think in 18. So that was like, okay, well, what's, what does that mean? You know, what is SOS? What's the, what's the Morse code? What, you know, so it, it, it starts really more from the holistic part, especially in today's pageantry. It's about the overall show design because you want the guard to succeed. You want the brass to succeed. You know, there's just so many more people in the cast that require, you know, synergy, you know, it, doing indoor is, is a lot more free, freeing because there's just less elements that you can be, you can be creative within the percussion element because there's only percussion and electronics. So I think that really how we would program at Boston was really about starting with the, what is the show? Like this year was Zoom. What is Zoom? Well, it's, it's going to be about speed. It's going to be about perspective, zooming in, zooming out. You know, we kind of talked in terms of general terms like that. So then it was more about how can we create great music within that, you know? And, and then from there, it's a deep dive into the source material, however that is. The Zoom thing was fun because Ryan George is a composer. He composes a lot of commissions for Wind Ensemble. And this was one of the first years that we actually, really the, the, the first four minutes of the show was very composed. It was based off of a, a trailer from the movie somewhere, which is a Sofia Coppola movie. Just it was just this this aesthetic, and we took that minimalist, and then we kind of were able to create around it. So I think it really depends on like what the show is first, and then we go deep dive in, you know, from there. You know, in in eighteen we did Remember Spiritual. So then, and I had experience with that with Blast. That was that was another. That was like the same conversation we had with with Medea, was doing Remember Spiritual again was sort of like, okay, well, I already did this. with We did this with Brass Theater, which was the first incarnation of Blast that did that piece. And then they did it. They took it to Broadway. How are we going to do that differently? Well, we kind of just blew up the scale a little bit and then let the guard go crazy. So we had like a, a vision for letting the guard sort of be the, the face of that piece. And then everything that I wrote had to be phrased in a way that the guard could really succeed. So I think there's a lot, there's just a lot more details you have to think about than just the drumming. And then you can get into inside of that. Um, but the way that we start is really from Keith's vision first. And then we go into like meetings with Ryan George, the composer. So we kind of go into composing an outline of like what the role of the percussion is going to be. And then Ian Moyer, my writing partner, and Mike Zellers, who does the electronics with us, then the three of us get together and we, we start creating. Then we can start to be creative within that, but not until we have the parameters of that stuff set in modern drum corps. Makes sense. You're kind of segueing me on on your own, which is killer. <laughs> um, but you're talking about like the attention to details and stuff like that. So I've heard that you are very uh, attentive and meticulous to detail when it comes to just like writing your music, and also just your staffing as far as the expectation for the staff to understand the music, to have the music, and just like teaching it and very meticulous with like scheduling. And I think that that's one part of the activity that a lot of people miss, especially with a big organization like yours, which I think really can be in, I don't know, inserted into any organization, but just not going into a rehearsal with being like, 
well, this sounded bad yesterday, so I guess we'll work on that for a little bit, and I guess we'll work on this for a little bit. So yeah, yeah, that doesn't work because you know you have to you have to have a bigger plan than that. You know, a lot of it starts with what was the reason you wrote it in the first place. And you know, my my mentor was Tom Hannum. So if you look at Tom Hannum's scores over the years, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of information on the scores. You know, so that that's what I come from. I've evolved Is he still a little. Handwriting his. No, he's not, but I I still am. Oh, oh yeah, oh, wow. I, I, dude, that's I'm, sick. I am for my my, my like the, the like the drum corps groups. I I definitely do. I I use finale at a, at a slower pace, and I I use that with my bands and stuff like that. But the the drum corps kids get my handwritten scores because I feel like I can manipulate the detail on the score better. The the difference that I've changed, like when I was teaching stars, so this is a million years ago. Um, what was on the page is what we taught. And that was it. Until that was perfect, I didn't even think about changing the parts. And I think that what I've evolved in is that we start from that premise and then when it's needed, we change. So we can pivot based on, yeah, let's bring that up a little bit. And sometimes I'm like, no, let's bring the, the tap level down a little bit because that's, even though it's uncomfortable, it's important for that part of the show. Um, but I think being flexible is the way to kind of do it now you know to, to try to be more flexible about the player perspective is something that is more important to me than it used to be but we're talking about a smaller degree of change because you're starting from a very organized place and that's that's my approach is to have all those i want all the sound organized and then i want to mess it up that's more how i write i love it um so speaking of like you're talking about heights and this and that. Are you, uh, I guess, pedagogically into you put heights on the page versus dynamics, or is it like a little bit of a hybrid of both? Um, are you into more like the look of like everybody moves the same, or let's try to make everybody sound is the same and then adjust the look from that? If somebody's like way out of whack, what's kind of your philosophy in that regard? I think the thing that I do that is from the old days is that it's about individual quality. So the individual, like a lot of our assignments that we do are based on the individual being able to perform as an as a soloist, play their stuff to, in a lot of cases now we do it to the MIDI, we'll do it to the brass MIDI. So they're, they're required to play the parts to the wind MIDI and it's gotta be perfect within that context. That's like what we're doing virtually. Um, so that's where we start from. Um, but the heights and like the basic, I have a height system, I guess. Like it's a, it's, a, I, I talk about like a zip code. It's like the city limits to get in the city limits. You have to have, you know, the dynamic scheme is this. And I do that from a player perspective because I was a player, you know, it, it's not that deep. I mean, I'm not a composer. I compose for a living, but I'm not a composer. I was a player, you know, and I was a T I was a technician. So I think everything I write, starts from there how i would play it and then from there we will adjust so you're in that city limits when you start adjusting um and there are definitely i mean we're adjusting the dynamics all the, all the time um but the way it's written they're required to play it how it's written but that being said heights aren't mathematical because if we play low and fast it's light if we play low and open rhythms it's weighted if we play 
huge fortissimo, you know, some some kind of a content that's not just slams at the end of a phrase, but you're playing, you know, fours or you're playing some kind of something that is articulated. Um, we play with weight if it's open enough. So I think the touch is always changing. You know, the quality of the sound inside the dynamics is always changing. That's what makes drumming so unique. And I think the look of it for me is about the drumming style is the look. So like I try to write the drumming so that if you drum it right, it has a look. I don't make the look out of the drumming, if that makes sense. It's right. not, it's not no, backwards. Yeah. It's, and not that not if, if groups do that, it's, it's fantastic. Just the way that I think about it is more because I write a very physical book. I mean, I like, I like the energy. I like the visceral quality. Um, as a player, when I played, that's what I was engaged with. So I like there to be an organic energy about the music. Um, and we play a lot of notes. We play a lot of continuous phrases of notes. So for me, it's about trying to keep that energy going uh, and sustaining it. So if we have to adjust something, it's based on that. It's, it's, it's really cool to hear you use that analogy of like within the city limits, I guess. And it kind of, that it kind of encompasses something that I've verbalized on here many times at this point that, you know, everybody's hands are built different. The size, length of everybody's fingers, the thickness, the palm size, the weight. So what's going to get one, like, obviously you're going to be in the ballpark, like that city limits if you're all playing the same dynamic, but how high within you know, your standard deviation of what, what height is it's going to be, it's going to differ from player to player to get the sound you want. And so it's going to be in the ballpark. It's going to be in that city limits. And I, if I've interpreted what you're saying right, like I think that's awesome to hear because that's something that was maybe, I don't and this could be completely naive on my part being a younger age out and stuff like that and not really around in the 90s and stuff, but it comes off to me that those older groups kind of, we're all about, you know, we have to look uniform. We have to be completely the same across the board. Even if you can't hear us, it's got to look the same. But everyone's built different. Everyone's piano is going to be a little different. And as long as it's in that ballpark, it's going to work still. It's going to sound great because you're going to have person A playing with a certain sound quality and person B playing with that same sound quality. But if their hands look a little different or... I guess for, yeah, just if the hands just look a little different, it's still going to work amazingly well because at the end of the day, like those little minutia of difference in the way two individual players look isn't going to be picked up by anybody, whether you're 20 feet away in the lot or hundreds of feet away in the crowd, in the stands or a judge or whatever. So it's, re it's I think that's a great analogy for it and groups have done it differently, but it's cool. I, I just, I think that's amazing that they the actually sound, have gone that way. Yeah, I mean, the sound, you know, I'm just talking about my approach. The sound is the most important because you do have different hands. You do have different sized hands. You do have different, you know, the physical makeup of players are different. Their experience is different. You know, if you watch, if you watch my groups at Boston, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, they're all different. And, and yeah. we're actually in a longer breath of development. You know, I mean, one thing that I'm passionate about because I – you know, to be super transparent, I mean, I, I started in the Crusaders as a player. I marched in 88, 89, 90, 91. Four years in the Crusaders, we never made top 12. We had some great drum lines. And we had some really talented people there. And it was always in a state of development, you know. And that development is why I kind of, I'm sort of addicted to that idea. Like going to Boston was the idea of 
let's take this and let's see how far we can go with it. But it's going to take time. It doesn't take one year. It takes multiple years. And to create a style and to create something unique, um, it takes time. And along the way, you know, you, you, you have ebbs and flows along the way. But the sound is the most important thing. Because if you can, if you, the best groups that certainly that I've ever had or the best playing groups that you ever hear, you know, they're, they're in that kind of aggro zone of they're able to, they're able to play the book in a way that is uniform from a sound perspective much different than just looking the part looking the part gets you through the camps i think i do believe that there's certain like it's a down like i'll notate downstroke i'll notate that's going to float that's going to be full mm -hmm. strokes that's good there are notation that we do to get you in that city limits but after that the, the rest of the summer you spend finding that sweet spot where where it sinks you know where, where it's where the blend is in, it, you know the tuning of the drums is part of that you know, the, but the individual quality is the biggest part of that. Yeah. And if you have that, that makes the most, go ahead, Evan. Go ahead, Mike. No, you're good. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I just cut a space, so go ahead. It'll come back to me. I think that makes the most sense anyway, as a performer, because you're talking about if uh, someone's like, oh, your height's this, your height's that, like if, and if me and Mike and you, Colin and Zach Schlicker are standing in a line and we're doing the right thing and we're watching the drum major, watching our forms and stuff, like... We can't see each other's heights. You, you're never gonna do. You're never gonna get that perspective. But what you can do is use those ears. Open those ears, baby, and you can be like, "All right, hear the people around you. Like, what does it sound like? How do you fit into the sound? Like, your musical trio of like you in the middle and the people on each side of you. What's that blend like? And teaching kids how to use their ears and find that, as you said, that hum where it's just that pure balance is such a sweet feeling. And, and I knew that you guys had that very quickly of seeing Boston this 2021 summer because you watch the videos and you can look, if you look really close, and I'm a big snare drum nerd, so of course I was paying attention to this. I was like, I always dissect the player's hands and I'm like looking at, kind of do it subconsciously a little bit. I'm like, oh, well, it's, it's, it's crazy. You can tell they're all getting good individual sound qualities because their hands don't look identical. You can look from player to player to player in the snare line and they're close and the motion is close and how they're approaching the drum is the same, but the heights are slightly varied, hand position to the body is a little different, but again, it goes back to everyone's built different and when you see a group that's like that and that sounds phenomenal like you guys did, it's like, yeah, I guarantee I could ask any one of those eight or nine, I think you all had nine snare drums and it goes for the quad line too and probably the bass line. You could ask any one of them to play their parts individually and it's going to sound great. And there have been groups that I've walked up to and I'm like, I'm kind of questioning and I don't, I'm not going to name any, any groups or years or whatever, but I've been like, well, I don't know if that person right there would sound amazing if they played that part by themselves right there. And, but name you guys, name them. <laughs> but I, you guys just instantly struck me as like, I can tell that you're employing that individual sound quality. Are we producing the same level of, 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 uh, I guess, quality for lack of a blanking on a different word for it right now. And, you know, Josh Bricky, shout out to him, his philosophy at X when we were there is it's like an 80, 20 rule, 80% playing perfect, like an individual and 20% being aware of your surroundings. And that's going to get that amazing blend and balance from player to player. Not if you're all playing the same three inch tap height and it's going to be close but it's going to sound amazing and be close enough. And that's, that punched me in the face. Like from the first time I saw you guys this summer. 
Yeah, I mean, there was a time in older drum corps where people played too height playing and really clean. And it was amazing, crystalline clean, like beyond clean. And then, like Garfield Cadets, you know, I'm going back in time, Tom Hannum's groups in, the, in Garfield, like you're talking about like 80, 85, 80, 80, not so much 86, but 87, 88. You know, these groups, they, they were playing very a wide range of dynamics and thinner parts. So then the height system really helped define how you can make a melodic drum line. And I think nowadays what I try to do is take that idea, but then institute better quality and better ear training because mm -hmm. you're, it's all about the player, the player, you know, and that's why some years, like, especially with the groups that I've had over the years, because I'll go to different groups when we're rebuilding, you know, uh, you, you guys, when we were talking in the pre-interview, we we're talking about magic of Orlando, one of my favorite groups, it was a, it was a group that was really in a different level of competition when they started and so for them, it was really about trying to strengthen the individual players. And, and, and if I had stayed there for four years, they would have gotten to a really high level. I, and I think that a lot of times in the sports day that we live in where, you know, if you don't get results right away, people want to make a change. To me, I would say keep your staff longer and develop your system and develop it to the highest level. And then you can reach those places. And, and with Boston, I had the, the luxury that I, w I wasn't going anywhere. You know, I'm going to be here for a long time. So we're slowly building the program. And, and that's how you do it, is, is, is you get to that point where the players can really take the charge and, and, and be a difference maker in the, in the performance. It's not so much about the writing. There's been a lot of arguments here and there about like, oh, you know, is it the writer? Is it the player? To me, it's always the player. You know, the writer has to make sure that they are set up for success, but the player brings it from an 85% to a 98%. And that takes time. And, and the best drum lines you have are the ones that have the experience where they can, they can, they can perform that and they can take charge of it. And uh, yeah, it's fun. It's fun when you can get to that point, uh, but it does, it does take time. It's not something that that's easy to do. And that's why there's only so many groups that are, that sound the best. And uh, we have certainly history on our side to go back. You can listen. And, you know, with the modern day of everything that's recorded, you know, you can hear that. You can hear that excellence from those groups that have that understanding. Oh, yeah. Immortalized on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of the players and modern drumming and this and that, and you being, I guess, a student of the game and just continuously learning yourself, how has it evolved with just keeping up with trends of what's hot, like what rudimental vocabulary the current kids are playing, like the craziness that has evolved of like bass splits and tenor rounds these days? How how do you find yourself like keeping up or just evolving your arranging with that? I mean, it's been cool because a lot of the stuff that the groups are playing at the highest level, a lot of it is what you would play in individuals. So like when I was a player, in doing the the individuals competition was it was more of a thing that you did back when i marched it was something that you sure. sort of focused on and that was a place where you were more creative because the way that the writing was back in those days you know i'm old so those the the writing in those days that was where you saw a lot of the new ideas and I, I, a lot of what i see now is sort of a a regeneration of a lot of those ideas i mean you can watch some of the you know, the, the 80s Blue Devil snare drummers doing individuals. So you can watch 
these guys play and you go, Oh, I, that's what people are doing in indoor. Uh, to me, it's like a, it's a, there's a lot of that passover from the individual style of performing a solo to how we're performing as a full line. So that, that's something that definitely I'm tuned into. And, you know, it's, it's cool too, because having colleagues, you know, all, we're all friends. We've been doing this so long. So being able to watch the other groups, of course, I'm always paying attention to seeing what people are doing and hyping, you know, the different things that people are, are pulling off. And, you know, so that, that's definitely stuff that we're dabbling in, but a lot of it, again, in drum corps, I think you're trying to, you're trying to think about, you know, what does the music need? There's always that, that weight of like, what does the show need? What does the music need? But there are those spots where you can open up hopefully and, 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 and do some things that are a little avant-garde. Um, we were talking, I know we were talking in the pre-interview a little bit about like, you know, do people, do I let the members kind of participate in the writing? I would say generally no, but I listen. I always listen to their opinion. You know, I always listen. I try to, because I came from a school where you tried to write it perfectly the first time. But that being said, uh, like Daniel Gutierrez is a tenor player that's been with us in Boston. His brother is a great story. His brother had was in blue coats and had marched. He filled a spot in 2012 at cadets when I was there. Uh, Moise is Ureno junior. He's another guy. There are two pulse guys uh, that we took in. We had injuries. It was like, you're in, I have no audition. It was like, come in to move in 2012. You're in the cadets. And they, <laughs> and they, and they, no, I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's, I, I did a, a quick psychological analysis on the phone with them. I'm like, these guys are good. You know, they're good and they're great players. They'll figure out how we do things. I'm not worried about the style. They'll, they'll assimilate the style. In some cases, their style kind of even, even uh, influenced how we were playing. Uh, so it was, I was never worried about that. So literally, I'm telling you, these two guys, they showed up at move-in. It's like, you're in the line. No audition. Let's go. <laughs> and it was, it was fantastic. And Ephraim, the tenor player, his brother, Daniel, was younger. And he, so by the time I go to Boston at 17, he's kind of at the age where he's ready to march march in, in Boston he comes out and he still he marches you know a number of years with us and he is such a great tenor player um he's the first guy like in 19 and 20 I let him kind of write the tenor feature because he was just he had some great ideas and we talked about phrasing I might have gotten in and I was like an irritant I might have given him a couple like things but you know he really did uh for the first time kind of write some stuff but there's there's guys in the line I'm always asking the guys in line how does that feel you know we're always adjusting dynamics based on them. You know, does that feel right? No. Can we do this? Yep. Let's do that. You know, so there's a lot of that conversation, not so much that like people are writing the parts. It's more that they're helping bring the parts to life because like what I write is me, write Me thinking of the part. I'm either thinking of the part or I'm playing the part and then I write it down and then they play it. But when they play it, they have to make it their own. So there's a lot of interpretive things that they do to it that bring it to life. So that's why I keep saying it's a member driven thing, even though I kind of I'm the writer and I'm very particular about the system and our system is very particular, um, not so particular that the members can't take charge and adjust, but they're not adjusting a lot of the parts. They're adjusting a lot of the interpretation of the parts. But Daniel Gutierrez, I have to shout out to him because he definitely 
uh, was one of the first guys where, cause he's just a phenomenal individual player. So like, I'm like, Oh, what, what do you got for flam tap around? Like, what do you kind of think about here? And he'll come up with something. I go, oh, that's fantastic. Let's do that. <laughs> you know, so, I was so wondering, he, I was wondering a little bit about that because he, he uh, he's from the West coast, right? Yeah. Yeah. He marches RCC and, RCC. And, and when I saw the tenor feature this summer, I was like, this feels like Colin, but it doesn't, look like Colin yeah uh yep. like just some of like the flam like arounds and stuff and I'm pretty crude as a tenor player because I suck at tenors but I do like watching it because I feel like it looks like aliens playing drums because I can't do it <laughs> um but I was just like this I so I was wondering about that a little bit if he, no, he gets a, he, yeah he gets a writing <laughs> he gets the writing credit on that feature and and the same in the 19 feature also um he nice. yeah he he was he's just we had some moments in the show where it was a stop time, let the tenors play. So that that's easy to let the students get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my cadet time, you know, Jay Bocook, who is the brass ranger, you know, still at cadets and was the ranger with me for, for eight years that I was writing. Um, you know, he's one of the most talented musicians on the planet, let alone in drum corps. So a lot of his ideas that Jay would, uh, I don't know if Jay's listening to this. I certainly want to shout out Jay. He's such an influence on me. Um, you know, what Jay would write rhythmically in the brass, what he would write, you know, there wasn't a lot of room to like stop time and play. Um, and when there was, we were doing a lot of the musical motifs at Cadets. So there wasn't as much room to do it there. But at Boston, we've had some some moments where we could get into that. And it's I love to get the members engaged. Anything I can do to get them kind of feeling ownership. I always tell the members, you know, even though I have a different job than you, we're equal investors. You know, it's it, I really work for them, as I said earlier in the podcast. You know, that's the way I think about it. So some of that is is being a coach, like here's the playbook. But, you right. know, there's always room for interpretation. A lot of what we adjust is really the interpretation of what they play. And, um, you know, it, and it, it, it's cool because a lot of times the most interesting parts come out of the members the way that they feel comfortable playing it. Because how I play is still a little different than how they play, if that makes sense. And that's cool. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely. I, I usually find myself, uh, with my arranging, asking several of those questions to students because, not to toot my own horn, but I'm incredibly good at playing downstrokes. So <laughs> it's easy for me to like play things and then go into like a really low tap height. That's a skill uh, that many people can't play anymore. So that's a good skill. That is, that <laughs> so that's, is 100% that's true. That's the skill we work the most on. Is and that is a shout out to uh, Eric Ward pedagogy from like yeah, my Eric school instructor. Is, yeah. So Come on, man. Eric um, Ward is the man. Mike and I have lineage uh, from Eric Ward drumming, drumming family, family tree. tree. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so many of the things that I do, I'm like, oh, this feels easy to do. And they're like, this is super hard to like stop. I'm like, all right, well, We'll, we'll modify it, but <laughs> it's, um, it's funny you say but, that Colin too. You agree with him on that. It's, it's, you guys have some of the best accent to tap differentiation and have in like the cadets lines you taught in the, in Boston. Now it's just boom, 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 accent tap, accent tap. And it's incredible. The fact that the kids can do that and you guys get them to play with that it's defined, but it's, it comes off as the sound is still big, even at the tap height which means there's relaxation, there's openness in the hand and the grip pressure and or lack thereof pressure or whatever. Like I've always impressed every single year. Like, do you guys talk about that a lot? Do you f- harp on the accent tap height or does it kind of just happen naturally 
with no, the system natural. that you guys teach. No, it's it's all the time. I mean, the hardest stuff to play. If you look at the notes on the page, most of the notes are taps. So that's the part that's the yep. hardest to clean. Yep. Um, that's what we spend most of our time on. And this group, we spent a lot of time. I mean, all the groups, but this group was able to really train because we did have more time to train. We did a lot of grace note work, you know, bead down. A lot of thing that's in vogue now is bead up. So if I'm playing like a bounce rudiment, any kind of flam tap, any type of touch of anything that's like open in the hands, you know, the, the bead can be up on the tap height. It can be more like a mezzo forte tap height. But when you're playing, you know, fast double flam drags or something that's a down, clearly a downstroke, you've got to get the grace notes down. So we did a yep. lot of like half inch, like grace note control stuff. And just working on that part is uh flams to me, a flam. And I'm only giving you my opinion. There's many different philosophies. My opinion is a double stop is not a flam. It, it de- <laughs> it, the reason I don't like double stops is that a double stop deadens the, the, the rebound on the head. Yeah. So if you're Fills playing like momentum. a floppy, yep. yeah, if you flop, if you're playing floppies or something that requires constant rebound, like a dribble on a basketball, you can't do that if you're playing double stops. The flam, the chut, actually helps propel that rebound into the hands. You, the drop catch, I call totally. it drop catch. So that's like a big drop catch is a big thing that we spent a lot of time on. And this group was in a number of years of incarnation of working on that. Um, you know that that that's the thing. Like my the progression of Boston started in seventeen. You know, we kind of kind of we changed a lot of everything that they were doing, and um, we had some great kids that stayed on when i went there in 16 uh, 16 17 we didn't cut anybody it was like you're all in the line but you have to adhere to these parameters of preparation and they were the ones that really made a big push for us going into 18 and a lot of those kids aged out and then we we were rebuilding a little bit in 19 and then in 2021 those kids all stayed we were lucky that we had um, a very a very good returning class from 20 to 21. In fact, everybody pretty much stayed. So we were able to really train, train and get that stuff because that takes a lot of time. You know, cadets, I mean, I'm going to say it took us probably until the first four or five years that I was there where we really developed the finger control to be able to play, you know, a fast trip, a roll into paradiddles into some other kind of, you know, skill set. being able to change the touch on a dime. And that, that's, that's the thing that I love about about great drumlines is where it, there is an unpredictability to to how you can change dynamic and still play content. Whether you're playing super high and there's content, not just slam, not just a rim shot at the end of the phrase, but you're playing something at fortissimo that is like a rudimental part, something that has really a uh, a difficult skill set, and then you can go down to nothing and play something down low. And that, to me, the dynamic range is what makes battery musical. It makes it makes it interesting. And I, I can't say that every drum line I've ever had can do that. It's hard to do. It takes it takes kids coming back multiple years to kind of uh to, to be able to to get a command over that. Well, you you've achieved it because most of your groups after like you said took a few years of cadets and you're now been at Boston for a handful of years that that dynamic contrast, I think your all's dynamic contrast is almost unparalleled by just about anybody out there. And that includes Vanguard, BD, like just your loud, the difference between your all's loud and soft and the fact that it stays open and you can change it on a dime. Like you were talking about that variation is just so satisfying 
as as an age out as an alumni of course as as just a fan like it's just that that's it and and I've really come to appreciate what you all do and and like you said it took a few years because when you first got to Boston it was like some some stuff was kind of choked and it wasn't it wasn't kind of that big open sound you're used to from these top groups and like you said it takes time to evolve and put your system in place and it's it's obviously in place now and the fact that it came to fruition whether you want to say it came to fruition in 19 or in this weird covid induced year we just had was it just speaks volumes to the consistency it definitely it definitely came to fruition you know this year because the kids had stayed there was many i would say there's a big component of 19 that came back mm-hmm. and then the kids that we added could train really almost an extra year yeah. so that really helped us get an edge on that idea and you know look the groups that you're mentioning i mean they have their way they do things that's phenomenal um what i love about drum corps especially when i marched if you watched marty hurley's drum lines with phantom regiment or you watched tom hannum or tom monk's line lines in the late 80s early 90s cadets or if you watched you know vanguard glenn crosby ralph hardeman you watch that you know all these blue devils you watched what they were doing with tom float and then you watched what they were doing with dave glide and scott you know it was a completely you could listen in a lot and go that's who they are and mm-hmm. that's why i think what made star you're talking about star of indiana that's why star of indiana was interesting because it was so different there's no drum line that sounded like that um, so if you do what you do, if you if you cook, I always use food as a reference. You know, if you make your genre of food at the highest level, that's a Michelin rating. Give it a Michelin rating. It's, a, it's excellent. It can, <laughs> it can be 100 percent. You know, that's my thing with the judges is that you hope that, you know, that's the, the idea. The the idea of adjudication is that you're what you do, if you do it to the highest level and, and it has all those demands and all that effect and all that musicianship credit it it doesn't have to be we never want a copycat league that should never be what we're trying to do even though we all are influenced by each other and that's Mm. a natural thing yeah but the style of drum lines i love that it's different and um yeah i have we have our style and it was fun to be able to do that i'm telling you my biggest mistake was not kind of elongating our warm-ups and getting into (laughs) some other things because (laughs) <laughs> that's what I used to get excited about. And it was fun to get into that this year. And it really did open up our skill sets a lot. And that was, that was a real learning thing for me this year. That was fun. Um, but it's neat. It's great to see the Cavaliers and see these different groups. Everyone's doing their thing a little bit differently. Tuning is a big part of that. You know, we were talking about tuning. Maybe that's something interesting to talk about because yes, tuning, let's go there. tuning is a very different thing depending on the show, depending on the drill depending on the drums that you're playing on, depending, you know, depending hey, you on the were talking, yeah. You were talking about, uh, like, developing the members over multiple years, but I feel like that's a thing, too, that designers and technicians and caption heads develop also within the same program. Like, all right, you switched from group A to group B. Like, we now have this equipment. We have this head supplier, this drum supplier, this stick supplier, like, figuring out the timbres and what works. And also, like, figuring out what works within, like, that combination of things. And Mike and I, I'm not going to shy away from it, in, like, 17, I would say maybe even 18, have been like, oh, Boston, like, don't really, not my flavor of snare tuning or bass tuning or blah, blah, blah. But then we made the comment, 
uh, for 2021 of like, dude, their snares sound way different. Like, it, it sounds clear and the space between the rhythms are there, but still like a wetness to the drum that sounds like a snare drum instead of maybe like, this is not indicative of anything, but overly dry. Um, and then you said, yeah, you, you guys caught it. We have a new snare drum. So like, take us through that, like development of that, how it impacts like the tuning for your writing, just the drum itself, like, and just tuning as it relates to the, the ensemble and the arrangement. Well, well, to talk specifically about this year, and I'll only speak on my, the way that I tune, you know, because there's been many groups that have that prototype. There's a prototype Yamaha drum that we're using. I don't know if they want me to talk about it, but we'll talk about it. Um, And (laughs) we had developed this idea over a long period of time. And we had a kind of a symposium with a bunch of Yamaha artists at Yamaha. And they're amazing people. They're amazing. They're you know, their drum is, is their stuff is amazing. But what I, what I wanted and what a lot of us wanted was, um, better airflow around the snare unit. So I'll kind of dummy it down a little bit because the biggest change to me was that we had added some, some ventilation around the the snare bed and what that allowed us to do, it it basically dry. it, It gives you a little bit more clarity. The air disperses quicker. You don't get that pillow sound. A lot of times, like when I was at Cadets, what we were doing, and some of this isn't even the drum, it's just the way the music was. We listened to this kind of shows we were doing at Cadets when I was there. Um, In 2011, we were running, you know, for 11 minutes in crazy places on the field. 2008, all that Frank to Kelly music. Yeah, we were Nitro and Vesuvius. (laughs) Yeah, that was that was 07, actually the year oh, you're oh, yeah, talking okay, about. Okay, okay, okay. That was, but 07 is another great example of like where you have to consider, you know, the speed of what you're playing. You know, if I tune wide open on the bottom head with nine snares and we're running, I mean, running at 208 beats a minute, and you're playing triplet roll figures, you can't have the snares wide open. You're just not going to get. You're not going to hear the clarity. The players can't hear what they're playing. It's too fast. Now, that's a choice. That's a choice. That's why, I mean, I'll, I'll just talk drum corps again. That's why the Blue Devils have a very dry sound. They play very fast. They have, they have these figures that jump out at you that are very quick. Um, so so fast forward to let's keep it on task here, this conversation. The, the, the difference with having those air holes is it really created a clarity on the snare unit that was different. Like we had, I think we had a little bit of stick tape and that was it. We kept all the guts for the first time ever with the Yamaha drums. We were able to have all the guts on the drum. And love that. I love and, that. And it really made a big it made a huge difference. It was in a, it was one of those like we, we we took them out of the box, we tuned them up, and it was like, okay, this is way different. And we can kind of go there. It was it was like that. And it was really to me, my interpretation, I'm just being clear, my interpretation was that those air holes around the snare unit really made a huge difference. And uh, that enabled us to kind of open it up a little bit. And we still played really fast and you could hear the clarity. So that was a really, really big moment for us with the tuning for this that, year. That's amazing. And, and we go back to what you said, you're always learning. I learned something new right now because I had never known or considered because I've, I've been critical person. I had been critical of the dryness of the tuning that you used at Cadets in various years at Boston up to this year. It wasn't my my i guess flavor of snare drum tuning i guess but hearing you put it in those terms of look 
we're going so fast and we're playing such a high density of notes at a, at a high speed that if we tuned more wet or just a little thicker or wider, it would all sound muddled. They're running around the field and I literally, and I'm almost, I don't want to say I'm embarrassed to, not, to say I'm just now learning this, but that blows my mind because it's literally just like a light bulb moment for me. It just happened. I was like, wow, that, that really does make sense. Well, I'm just telling you, I'm telling you what we thought about on my cadet staffs. And I think Tom Unst had, you know, he had done, you know, decades mm-hmm. with that style of playing, you know, Jay Bullcook writes visceral music. Yeah. And it's, and, and, and George, George Hopkins was programming a lot of the style of those drum corps and it was, it was aggressive. And Jeff Sactic was the drill writer. So you have very physical shows and you're running around and you had to get your content in when you're in the back sideline running out of position, playing some crazy stuff. Yeah. So that was like how you, that was how you could compete with the blue devils who would, they were more modern. They would stage something and they would, they would do movement and, but they would be in one spot where you could really sample it. You had to sample us running, (laughs) you know, on the back sideline playing a fast role or whatever, whatever we were doing. You know, and I think Tom Monks, I'm throwing him in there. You know, I think some of his his revelations over time, he figured out that style of how to do that. And I really followed suit with that when I was at Cadets because we were playing the same style of music. Yeah. It wasn't like it wasn't like when I started writing at Cadets that we changed the style of the drum corps. We we were still doing a lot of that same stuff. And that tuning worked for the players because they could hear. You know, you're that changing makes- the form, you're running it, it's crazy. You, you you've got a big that, snare line. Yeah. That makes, that so, makes much so, sense. Much sense. so much sense. So much sense. I mean, sense. yeah. In, in 2009, BD's over here standing on chairs, and we're running our ass around the field. So, of course, we got to tune our drums different. So and, yeah. yeah, you you were in Crown, right? I remember you telling me you were in Crown 09. So that, that show same was thing. tuned a lot the same way. Um, it's not <laughs> – it's not as a musician i would i like the open tuning i like how paul tunes the snares i like that open tuning but the way that we are playing um in those days i think that it was optimum to do that but this but when you disperse the air hole you know the air hole and getting the air out of the drum faster that really helped a lot of that tuning um it, it, it really 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 did so that that that's a big part of that it'd be fun to do It'd be fun for you to watch a high cam version of, I'm just using Angels and Demons as an example, because that show, we, we did play to Kelly. We played Angels in the Architecture. I love that show. And that, that show was very star-like. It had a lot of transparency. We were framing brass parts all the time. And, uh, and that dryness of sound was, was, was optimum for how it blended with the, drum, with, the, with the brass. You know, a lot of these drum lines that you listen in the parking lot that you would say, that's an amazing snare sound. Maybe that doesn't work with the brass line. Like if I tune too low, it, it's going to get washed out with the brass. Like Gino Cipriani, who's I, I, another aside, he's my brother-in-law and my musical partner. Gino is, for those of you that don't know, he's the brass director at Boston. He was the brass director at Cadets for like, 10 years that I was there. And then even beyond that, I think he went there in 2000, you know, and he was at the blue devils before that. So this is like a brass icon, you know, I got to make the brass sound good. So that dryness, you're popping these, it's like a big band drummer. I'm popping these, you know, shots in the middle of spaces and these crazy intricate rhythms. You know, you can't have a wide open snare tuning. It's not going to work. It's not going to work with that style. Um, That being said, I'm excited to have a little bit more open tuning because what you can do is you can adjust your touch 
we always adjusted our touch at cadets, but you can really hear it clearly when you do it with, with a little more open tuning. Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. Was there, I guess in comparison to tuning or the same family tree, was there a reason then this summer that you went with the eight inch Spock, the eight, the eight, 10, 12, 13, 14, as opposed to the six? I love that, 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 first of all, you guys are so cool because you get into these, <laughs> this, these small details. I, I love it because these are things that we think about. You're actually nailing the things that we talk about before the season starts as we're developing the music and whatnot. So the Blue Devils, I'm going to give a shout out to Tom Floats era, the Blue Devils. Everybody had, you know, two six inch drums and they were doing like different, different setups. This is like, we're talking like. Um, they, they did two six inch with two different heads or something like that. Yeah, yeah, they would do stuff like that. But I'm going to go back to like floats era. We're talking like, I mean, this is like 1990. Okay, so let's take 1990. I mean, am I going too far back for you guys? No, you guys. No. <laughs> we, had, we had Pete Sappet on here. He told us all yeah, about Pete it. was on Matt, here, Matt. you know, whatever. You know, and those guys were, that, those were the, the, I don't think they would think this is derogatory in those days. They would come out and just drum better than everybody, but they were on the 50 yard line. I'm, I'm actually showing a visual. You know, they'd, they'd pull up and play the drum feature and they're playing rudimental stuff, you know, inverted cheese. They're playing all this crazy stuff that was like amazingly clean, unison snare and tenor stuff. But they always used an eight inch uh, Spock drum. And what I liked about it was you could play. I used it for the first time at Cadets because we were playing floppy flams. We're playing a lot of like this flam literature and I wanted them to be able to get on that drum and it to be like comfortable to play floppy flams or, you know, all this crazy flam literature. And it spoke a little bit more demonstrative than a six inch drum. A six inch drum is a timbre. An eight inch drum is a drum and it has a drum sound. And that was what we went for. But it was a throwback really from what my memory was of those old Blue Devil tenor lines. And, uh, and then we used it in cadets for the flam literature. And then we brought it back because really, really the tenor line was like, we want to use an eight inch. I said, yeah, it would kind of make sense because we were doing, we were experimenting with some stuff that had, um, you know, like that multi gear role they played in the feature. That was something that Daniel had envisioned. And I kept saying to him, I said, it was like a choose fours. your own adventure. Yeah. It was like yeah, one it guy's was... playing fours. One guy's playing like three, like singles. Like, I don't even know. Singling it. It was just nuts. Yeah, it was like a one was a roll, one was a singles, one was two four. Two guys were two fours, and the, and that that part we had tried that before that idea, and I I wasn't I I didn't love it because you couldn't see it from like where the judges would be, but we weren't being judged. So I said, who cares for the parking lot? Have fun with it. So it was kind of fun <laughs> doing it, but but the because it's hard to like when you watch, you have to rewind. You need you need the lot footage to rewind and see what they're doing. Oh yeah, but. But that was definitely inspired. You know, Daniel was really adamant about wanting to try that. And the eight-inch drum really helped that kind of speak. But but that's what what, what the eight-inch drum for me was. Um, being a tenor player myself, the two drums was always cool, but I always felt like it just added a lot of extra weight. And I liked the, being centered with the technique as a tenor player. So having the drum in the center of your body, I like that. So that's why we use the eight-inch. But who knows what we'll use next year? I don't know. But, yep, but the eight-inch eight inch is cool. I'm not gonna lie. As a snare drummer trying to play on a six inch, feels like I'm trying. I'm playing on a trampoline. I'm like, I can't control any of this shit. <laughs> well, a lot of people use it as an accent drum. You know, they play a roll yeah. on it occasionally. They'll, well, on they'll it. play. Yeah. They'll, they'll play rim shots and like accent patterns. But if you want to play content on it, you know, something that's really difficult. It's a lot. It's it speaks better on a on a bigger drum. That, and that's what I, I love the eight inch drum. 
I love it. I had it one friend great. say, I think I think it was maybe Andrew Kane, uh, who may have been in your um, yeah, he was in there. I think he said if your if your Spock drum has a has a like a I don't know a tune, it's too low. It just, it just needs to be like it just needs to sound like a a random thing. <laughs> He's like, if it sounds like a note, it's too low. You just gotta crank it. Like, and, and, and and that's a lot how that's a lot how that drum is used in drum corps. But that's why the eight inch was kind of cool because it was really like another drum one. That's how I thought about it in the yeah. writing. You know, Absolutely. as opposed to as opposed to keeping it like something that was, uh, you know, just, just again, like this thing that jumps out of the texture. So, yep. I, you know, I also that, that, that's say, where that came from. on the, on the topic of the quad line Boston, like you guys are still using those like pancake mallets, like the saucer heads. The like saucers, instead of using, That's another, boy, you guys I, are really getting I, into some interesting <laughs> ideas here. I, I love it. Like it's just the fullness the openness. Dude, the the... Well, who are said you that be... mallets suck? Who said that we shouldn't use mallets? I, I don't know. But the, the are you guys also been... playing on pinstripes? We are. Yeah, hell yeah. Pinstripes. Yeah, we're not only like... playing on pinstripes, we use drum set pinstripes, which are the glued ones. Nice. Which is what we would use <laughs> in the old days. Because they we, now you can't do that responsibly with a group that pays for the heads. So thank you to Remo, you know, for sending <laughs> us a billion heads. But uh, you get more you get more resonance out of those heads when they're glued because with the crimp lock there's like a machine that presses them into you know with a million pounds of pressure into the 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 rim and that's what makes it more durable. On um, the glued or glued, but they also have a more resonance. So we would use we use those for many many years. All through my cadet years, we used them. When and even this, before that, when did do this? When, when and why I feel did like the people snare... tried to abandon saucers because they were like, oh, it's too hard to control. We can't play high. No, tool. they're great. It's just it's another ta- it's another timbre. Um, in fact, there was a I had talked to the great people at Vicfrick. We had a prototype of that for years that we were thinking about trying to you know put out there. I, I, I'm holding hope that we're going to put out that that uh, that mallet soon at some point um, because we use it. We 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 use mallets. Uh, we use sticks a lot too. We use we use snare sticks a lot, uh, and they they have a certain sound. Um, but, but the mallet, yeah, the, the cookie mallets are great. You know, they, they really, they have a completely different tonal quality. It's yeah. a very dark resonant quality. And, uh, it's something that as a player, again, I, it's, it's something that I think is important to have in the mix. You, you can change mallets. <laughs> you can use sticks yeah. one minute, you can use those the next minute, Depending but, but we've gotten away. From, yeah. We've gotten away from those. And a lot of times, um, the blend, the, the sonority, if I'm using like a music term, you know, the blend and balance and tuning of the tenors to snares. It's nice when you're playing a lot of unison stuff. And I like to write a lot of unison skill sets because I don't, I was a tenor player. I used to get pissed when the, you know, snares were playing flams and we weren't, I go, we can play flams better than them. So I always try to write equality within, and even our baseline plays flams. I try to write equality with everybody playing the skill sets. So the mallet is really important in that. Yeah. I feel like when, uh, like my perfect blend if everybody's using sticks is like eight snares, five quads, but also five quads is just a monster to clean and like find eight dudes or five dudes that can really throw down. So if you're busting out the mallets, you can go nine and four and still almost achieve the same balance as the eight, five, if everybody's playing sticks. So I'm like, what are you doing? I, I like yeah. the blend better with mallets, quad to snare lines, the, with the mallet, the mallet parts just sound better to me. Just when they're when it's in there and it's blended, it's just more full. It's more open. It's just a little deeper. It's just I don't know. That's personal One, preference, subjective. But 
warms my soul. Yeah. And it, it, it depends on the writing. It depends. And, you know, another thing I, I keep saying this, but we're talking DCI. So you have to think about what blends with the winds mallets. When you have like a, a tenor only with mellophones or tenor only with, with the horn line or even tenor only with the pit, the mallet sound has less attack, more tone. And it blends, it blends really nicely. It's just, it's just another, it's another color that you can, you can use. Um, somehow we got away from that, but I never did because I'm old school. So I like to use the mallets. And I think that even in the hands, it's kind of nice. The rebound is like max. It's like max rebound. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I feel like we, they hit the zones better because aren't the mallets shorter than the sticks? They are. That's all fake news, man. Like <laughs> I, I was a tenor player. I'll get on the drums and show these guys. It's like, no, you just pull your, you pull your arms back slightly. You know, when you have longer sticks, I use, we use snare sticks when we play with sticks. We don't use a tenor stick. We use snare sticks because I like the full length of this snare stick to on the tenors. Like even when I was developing like the stick a million years ago, I don't know when my stick was developed. It was a long time ago. Um, but it works well on tenors because you just get to pull back a little, but you get that maximum kind of uh, torque out of this stick because it's, it's a longer stick and you can get maximum rebound and um, the tone is good. But but mallets being shorter, you just adjust a little. You don't have to pull back it at all. You just you really you are you are really comfortable because it fits the zones perfectly. So but yeah, there's a mallet. I'm, I'm telling you, there's a mallet from Vic Firth coming out at some point. I don't know when. Um, we're we're just trying to survive right now, and the companies have been. I have to give a shout out to all the companies. They've been phenomenal. You have people losing jobs. You have people going into other businesses it's been a very they've maybe been hit the hardest the companies the people are artist representatives the the people that that service the drum corps that work for these these companies i mean it's been really difficult you know you're being shut down no one's buying equipment for a year and a half it's been very difficult so i don't say that lightly yeah um but i think that that's something that we've been we had a couple prototypes that were pretty sweet so maybe next year we'll have something ready Shout out Brian Stalker. We're waiting, bro. <laughs> yeah, we got to talk to Brian. He listens to this stuff. Come on, Brian. We got to work. We've had him funny. on here. We've had him on. We love Brian. So, last question I have on my list. I might have Will... one unless this is the same question. Okay. So, I'll let you okay. go first, Evan. Will Boston use a cowbell? Oh, you <laughs> took it from me. God damn it. <laughs> now, you, now, now, you don't mean a cowbell in the parking lot because I want to I want to address the you parking do rock, lot yes, cowbell in the parking lot. <laughs> That's what we're getting at. The cowbell parking lot came about because there was a period of time where even though, like, try to hear me, I'm being trying to be funny about this, but even though we were doing finals in a dome a million miles away from Military Park, we were not allowed to use a metronome. Think about how crazy that is. Who were you interfering with having a, a Dr. B going? Uh, nobody. And uh, there was a, just an arbitrary rule that you could not use a metronome. So that's where the cowbell came from. I was like, all right, well, we don't have a mat, so I'm going to use the cowbell. And then, you know, the members being members, they like the hype because I get all fired up with the cowbell. I was banging the thing and going nuts. <laughs> so, so then, so then, like, I, I was fine to get rid of the cowbell. They were like, we want the cowbell. You know, we want it in, in the lot. That's part of who we are. So, but, but it's funny because this year, you know, we, we really used the met and then we really didn't like Red's Rumba is not meant to have a metronome. Like if you look at the music, there's places where I, I intentionally wanted to go faster and slower. Like if you put a met to it, it's never in time. It's not supposed to be. It's it's like a drum circle. 
it's it, it changes tempo like when it modulates into like a fast funk shuffle it's it changes tempo so it was something they did over muscle memory like much like the old school because when i marched we didn't have metronomes so you learn to feel um so so we'd have the cowbell in a lot but we never really used it because honestly we can use the metronome so when we needed the met we used that when we didn't they just used their ears and played so, but that really came about not from my own parameter it was just like because we couldn't use a mat and we sort of used it. And that's really where it came from. I was not—I was never like something where I wanted to have a cowbell banging, banging away, distracting the warm up. But then You're the like members a mile away from the stadium, with it's in a dome. <laughs> yeah, but think about that arbitrary rule by DCI. It makes no sense. What? 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 I mean, I can understand like a small show in Beverly, Mass, like on yeah. a Tuesday. You yep. know, when you're like yep. in someone's yard warming up. Okay, I get it. <laughs> but. But, you know, this was like you were the Blue Devils famously were getting penalties, you know, for using it uh, when we weren't supposed to. And I, I, I really side with the Blue Devils. I think it's stupid. <laughs> I think you should yeah. use whatever you want. I agree. Um, for me, the metronome is a tool, not a way of life. We use it and we don't use it. Depends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Evan, that. you stole my question. I hate you. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, Colin, you, got, you have any, like, last shout outs? Yeah. I do. I have one last thing to say. Just that um, our community is the best. It's all the drum corps. It's all the indoor lines. It's the marching bands. You know, my life is built around UMass as a college band. That's diff a different kind of genre. It's high school, you know, marching band. Some are BOA bands. Some are not. Some are just bands that just are, are, are creating community. It's not about any specific. It's about our community and how hard that we all work and regardless of recaps, regardless of any of the crap, it's about community and it's about doing something unconditional. And I think that the activity, our activity proved that over this time. And I'm just so proud of every individual player, every individual instructor. It's why I keep giving you all props, you know, for, for being people that are in your own busy life, you take time and do a podcast and, you, you are promoting what we're doing and it's just fantastic. And I hope that we never, ever get kind of high on the hog to the point where we're sort of, you know, forget that this can be taken away and we protect it and we keep doing what we're doing and keep pushing the envelope because with no judges and no adjudication, I felt like we, we tried, we all tried to push as hard as we could to keep this activity going forward uh, for the members who are the people that, again, we work for. And thank you to you both for uh, promoting everything. That's really, I don't do a lot of these podcasts, but I was super excited and, and, and really blessed to come on here with you and just talk some drum corps because it's important. It changed my life. It's, it's really everything about who Damn. I am. And, uh, and I, just, I just can't thank you all enough for, for what you do. And let's keep it cranking. Hell yeah. Yeah. I think that's a perfect way to end this thing. So, Colin, <laughs> thanks for hanging out. Everybody, social media, whatever, Patreon, Lone Star Percussion. You all heard the spiel in the beginning, if you're even still listening. After that, I oh, don't want to... Oh, they're wanna... still in. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to ruin what just that ending right there, so we'll just see everybody next time. Peace. Peace.